0: I encourage you to open your copies of the Scriptures this morning to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, if you don't have a Bible with you, you'll find a Bible near you in the hymnal rack of the pew in front of you, or if you're sitting in the front row of a section, you'll find that Bible beneath you in the hymnal rack. It's page 1008 in the church Bible this morning. Let me just say, as you can see, we are concluding our gathering this morning with a time around our Lord's table, and so if you came in this morning and you didn't pick up a communion cup, they're available out in the lobby and so if you need to go and get one of those right now feel free to do that but while you're finding your place in God's word let me just say let's never overlook the treasure we have in this book every Sunday we open this book and there is a reason for that the words I speak are not authoritative the words God speaks are authoritative This book does not simply contain the words of God. This book is the word of God. And I'm afraid that sometimes we get so used to having it and holding it. And we forget that there are so many languages and peoples around the world who do not have this in their mother tongue. We are a privileged people. Let's never take for granted what we hold in our hands this morning. And that's why every Sunday morning, when you walk into this room, this is where we go. This is. The word of God given to us by the God who reveals himself to us in his word so that we can know him. And that's what we've been talking about as we've been making our way through Mark's gospel. God is revealing himself to us in the word and through his own son, Jesus, who comes to live his life on purpose for us. And this word records for us the purpose for which he has come, and that is to give his life as a ransom for many. And so as the people of God, let us hear the word of God this morning as Jesus calls us to live our lives on purpose in following him. And that means we've got to be willing to submit to him and surrender to him. The one who possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. So do we? Because that's this scene And Mark chapter 11 and beginning in verse 27, and I'll read through verse 33. And they, that is Jesus and his disciples, came again to Jerusalem. Now it's Tuesday of Passover week. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And they're referring to what's happened yesterday at the temple when Jesus shut down the temple and threw out the money changers. Who gave you the authority to do that? And Jesus answered them and said, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things Was the baptism of John, that is John the Baptist, from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, they were afraid of the people. For they all held that John, the people that is, all held that John really was a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, We don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is the word of our God. And this is a text that centers on something very contemporary, a very controversial topic in our world today. It's the issue of authority. Have you noticed that authority is under attack in our world? Would you agree that people today tend to struggle with authority? Raise your hand. Would you agree? Okay. Would you agree that even we, as God's people, don't like being told what to do or what not to do? That's what our daughter and son-in-law are beginning to see in our grandson Wesley at 13 months. I know he looks... Innocent and precious, but they're beginning to see a whole new side of this little man. He wants to be his own little man. He wants to handle life on his own. He doesn't need a mom or dad or anyone else to guide him through life and to tell him what to do. And if that's true, at 13 months old, just imagine what it's going to be like at 13 years old. Because you know, from a young age, we're told that we're the master of our own fate, that we're the author of our own story. We're the captain of our own ship. That's why Billy Joel once sang, I don't care what you say anymore. This is my life. Go ahead, live your own life. Leave me alone. That's why Frank Sinatra sang, the record shows I took the blows and did it. My way, and that's why Jonathan uh, Lehman, an author and pastor, has written this: When we pull off the mask of individualism, when we what what we find behind that mask is a hatred of authority. It's not that people and their individualism are afraid of relationships. People long for relationship. Rather, it's a particular kind of relationship that people despise. The real problem, then, isn't really individualism. It's anti-authorityism. Loneliness is not the problem. A refusal to do life on anyone else's terms is the problem. Now, I get that that's a pretty in-your-face statement. Especially since many of us have been used or abused by someone in authority. A narcissistic boss or teacher or coach, an alcoholic parent, or even a controlling pastor. And so we tend to equate authority with authoritarianism. But what if... What if God, in His goodness, actually designed us not just to live under authority, but to thrive under authority, good authority, loving authority. That's also unilateral authority that's working in every situation, using every event and every person to work for our eternal good the eternal good of everyone who loves Him and is trusted in Him. What if there is a sovereign, wise, and loving personal God who is all of that for all of His people? Would you trust Him fully? Would you submit to Him unconditionally? Would you obey Him absolutely? Would you? Because the big idea of this text in Mark chapter 11 is that Jesus isn't just an authority, he's the authority, the good authority. To put it in terms that kids can understand, Jesus is in charge, he's the boss. And as the children of God, we are learning to embrace that and love that. But here in Mark chapter 11, there's a group of guys who hate that. And that's why this scene opens with a cosmic confrontation in verses 27 and 28. Now, there have been some pretty well-documented confrontations in our world's history. The Hatfields versus the, all right, we'll try this again, all right? So you didn't know the question was coming, so I'll be patient with you here. The Hatfields versus the McCoys. Reagan versus, all right, we'll try this one more time. Reagan, all right, so just so you know what's coming, tear down this wall, all right? So that's all you need to know. Reagan versus Gorbachev. And then, the granddaddy of them all, the Bears versus the Packers. But none of those confrontations can even begin to compare with this cosmic confrontation. This is evil standing in the face of good. Death standing in the face of life. When Jesus arrives back in Jerusalem on Tuesday and is walking in the temple, Where just yesterday on Monday, he stepped onto the Jewish religious leader's turf and stopped the temple dead in its tracks. There's a group of guys here who are not happy. Jesus shut down the money changers. He shut down the pigeon and lamb brokers. He shut down the selling and the buying and the commercializing. He shut it all down and then he sat down to teach in mercy. And kindness, to explain why he had done what he had just done, and all eyes were on him. Remember, we think of the temple as being this, you know, maybe about the size of this room or the size of this building, but the temple in Jerusalem is the size of 26 football fields. And Jesus has everyone's attention. All eyes are on him, all ears are tuned into him, because when Jesus speaks, everybody listens. For one day, the Son of God ruled the temple of God to point people to God. And that's why the religious leaders are ticked. Jesus is reigning on their Passover parade. He is affecting their bottom line. And so now when he arrives at the temple the next morning, the people are thrilled that Jesus is back again. He's doing a walk and talk with the people. They are taken with Jesus. They're enthralled with Jesus. And Luke chapter 20 tells us that they're taken and enthralled with Jesus because Jesus is preaching to them as he's walking the good news, the gospel. That there is hope. In God. And as Jesus is preaching in this walk and talk, he is stopped dead in his tracks. He gets the hand of the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, the big dogs, the big boys. They are an official religious posse who are coming to gang up on Jesus. And that's why Luke in his gospel uses a Greek word that says these guys are cornering Jesus and attacking Jesus when they're asking Jesus, Who gave you the right to do what you did yesterday? Who gave you that authority? because we're in charge here and we didn't give you that authority where are your credentials because they can't even begin to compare with my credential with our credentials who do you think you are jesus now before we unpack the purpose behind their question and what's driving their question let's consider what's missing from their question did you notice it did you notice that these guys the religious authorities in Israel don't deny that Jesus possesses authority they don't deny that Jesus has power they can't you know why Because all the way through Mark's gospel, Jesus has been putting his power on display in high definition for all to see. They've witnessed it. These very men who are attempting to shut him down. Because we're told back in Mark chapter 1 verse 22 that Jesus teaches with authority. In Mark chapter 1 verse 27, we're told that Jesus demonstrates his authority over demons. In Mark chapter 2, where four men let their paralytic friend down through the roof just to get him to Jesus, Jesus heals him to prove that he has the power to forgive sins. In Mark chapter 3, verse 15, Jesus proves his authority over sickness and illness. In Mark chapter 4, he shows his authority over nature. Remember, when he stills the storm by standing in the stern of that boat, saying, peace, be still. And then in Mark 5, Jesus demonstrates his authority over death when he takes Jairus' daughter by the hand and says, little girl, It's time to get up. And she does. He raises her from the dead. Jesus has put his power on display in so many ways with so many people. And that's why we kind of need to step back from this scene in the temple for a moment as Jesus is doing this walk and talk with the people. And we need to step back because there are probably people there at Passover at this moment, who hadn't just witnessed Jesus' authority, they had personally experienced Jesus' authority. Remember, historians tell us that there are two and a half million Jews in Jerusalem for Passover week. And if we could zoom in on some of those faces in the crowd, we would recognize them from our study in Mark's gospel. There would be formerly demon-possessed people who are standing there with Jesus. There would be ex-paraplegics who are now walking with Jesus. There would be those who were once blind and deaf who now are looking at Jesus and listening to Jesus. There would be ex-lepers and ex-cons, former prostitutes and tax collectors like Zacchaeus, who along with hundreds of others of sinners had experienced the power of Jesus redeeming grace. And they're standing with him now. People with new hearts, people with a new passion for life, people with a new purpose in life, people who hadn't just experienced his authority, they were actually living proofs of his authority. So I say to us, let's see them there with Jesus. Don't overlook them. Let their lives speak into your life this morning. Where are you doubting Jesus' authority in your world? Maybe you're a believer in Jesus, but there's still stuff about the past that tends to haunt you and dog you and corner you in the same way the religious leaders have cornered Jesus here. Maybe there was a time when you were unfaithful to your spouse or you failed with your kids, or when you were self-medicating. Maybe it's still now that you're addicted to alcohol or prescription meds or that you find release through porn. See the authority of Jesus. See that His grace is powerful enough to forgive and overcome your sins. All of them. Because there are people now standing with Jesus who had once given themselves to every kind of sin, but now they're with Jesus because of the grace of Jesus. Or maybe for you, you're questioning his authority over a health thing or a relationship thing, and you've prayed, but nothing's changed. And you're asking, if if the authority of Jesus is real, where is it in my world? Where is it in my life? I say to you this morning, listen, Jesus doesn't just have the authority to do what we're asking. He has the authority to sustain us when he says no to what we're asking. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 9. Where we learn that when Jesus doesn't give us what we're asking, he gives us something better and stronger. My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. It's in the know that Jesus gives that we discover the authority and sufficiency of his sustaining and empowering grace. So I say to us this morning, believe that Jesus possesses authority over everyone and everything. He's proven it to the point that even his enemies wouldn't deny it because they couldn't deny it. And that's why they ask, who gave you that authority, the authority to do what you're doing on our turf. And if you've been around for our study in Mark's gospel, you would know then where the religious leaders are going with their line of questioning here because back in Mark chapter 3, some of these very guys here, some of these same Jewish religious leaders accused Jesus of getting his authority from where? From Satan. Satan. And that's still their line of questioning here. That's where they're headed. That's where they're going so that they can crucify Jesus for blasphemy. But Jesus is wise to that. He knows that, which is why he's not going to play their game. Instead, he's going to answer their question with a question in verses 29 through 33. It's a penetrating question. Jesus is going after their hearts. He's going to uncover their motives. What are they after here? Why are they asking this? Why are they confronting Jesus and cornering Jesus and attacking Jesus? Now, before we dive into the specifics of Jesus' question for them, let's just pause for a moment and look at the mercy and kindness of Jesus. I mean, this is a religious posse who won't stop dogging Jesus and attacking Jesus until they've succeeded in killing Jesus. Until he's hanging like a criminal from a cross. And Jesus knows that. In fact, if you go back in Mark's gospel, you would find three different times where he's predicted that these are the very men. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders who will have him arrested and crucified. And yet when they show up, he doesn't turn away from them. He doesn't ignore them and walk away from them. He answers them. He engages with them. He communicates to them. Now, He isn't going to jump through their hoops. He isn't going to play their games. But He will demonstrate His mercy and kindness to them by answering their question with this question. Was the baptism of John, John the Baptist, was that a God thing or a man thing? It isn't a snarky response. It's a masterful response. Jesus is turning the table on these guys by giving them a question they can answer, but they won't answer. And that's why they kind of say, Jesus... um, We need to think about this for a moment. And so they kind of step back and they kind of huddle up. And one of them says, you know, let's really think this thing through. Because if we say that John the Baptist was a prophet from God, we're stuck. Because then we'd be forced to say that John the Baptist was right when he said about Jesus, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's John 1 verse 29. And so if we answer yes, then we'll lose our authority over the people because they're all going to go after Jesus. So that answer is off the table. And then another guy pipes up and he says, yeah, you know, you're right. But if we say that John the Baptist wasn't a prophet of God, then the people will turn on us because they all believe that he was a prophet from God. So if we answer no, we lose the respect of the people. Either way, it's going to cost us in the court of public opinion. I mean, these guys are the consummate politicians, aren't they? And that's when a third guy chimes in and says, there's only one way we don't lose here. Let's just say we don't know. Their only way out is a total cop-out. To stand before the creator of the universe, unwilling to acknowledge his identity, to speak personally with God in human flesh, and to defiantly reject his authority. This is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the commander of angel armies, the one before whom demons cower, the one who shuts down storms with the whisper and overcomes disease with the word and destroys death with his life. These men are standing before unilateral, absolute, unstoppable authority and they refuse to answer the question. Why? Because they're afraid. Notice that's what the text says. They're afraid of The people. You see, there is a connection between recognizing and acknowledging and submitting to Jesus' authority and our fear. There is a connection between being unwilling to acknowledge and submit to his authority and our fear. You see, fear is living as though Jesus isn't the authority people are. Fear causes us to see people as big and Jesus as small. Fear wants us to believe that security is found in what others think of us rather than who God is for us. And that's why Proverbs 29 verse 25 says, "...the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord..." is safe. And that isn't just a problem for these religious leaders in Jesus' day. It's a problem for us as Jesus' followers in this day. Fear. Let's just admit this morning that sometimes our response to Jesus mirrors these guys' response to Jesus because it's driven by what others may think of us. And what it may cost us. A friendship, a promotion, a raise, a boyfriend or girlfriend, my reputation might take a hit if people know I love and follow Jesus. And so we tend to play it safe. We go incognito, silent with our faith in Jesus. Because when fear takes hold, we begin to view life through the lens of negative possibilities rather than biblical realities. By the what if, rather than the what is. Okay. Um, God is is so good. I, I want you to know that God works in my heart all, all week long before I ever preach what I preach to you on Sundays. And sometimes I, honestly, I don't like that. I wish God would stop that. Um, because here I am preparing this week to preach on fear and, and viewing life through the negative possibilities rather than the biblical realities. And this week, our... our our Ford Flex, that's one of the cars we drive, our Ford Flex began experiencing steering issues. And um, so I said, Joanna, let's let's run to AutoZone. And I picked up some power steering fluid and brought it home. and, And with my great mechanical abilities, I opened the hood. And then I searched for where you put the power steering fluid in. And then I discovered, after searching YouTube and watching videos for 30 minutes, there is no power steering fluid that you put in to a Ford Flex. It's all electronic. And that scared me because I knew what that meant. That meant this isn't a small issue. This is a big issue. And so I did what any responsible vehicle owner would do. I I went to Google. And I began Googling Ford Flex steering problems. And I read page after page after page after page that said, don't expect to spend hundreds, expect to spend thousands with an S. And so I got afraid. I'm like... This is not good, and what I'm about to tell you, Joanna doesn't know. So this is one of the reasons she comes to church on Sundays um, to learn, because she doesn't know. I went to Cars.com, and auto trader, and I'm like, we're gonna. I'm not gonna spend thousands on this this car. I'm gonna spend thousands on a different car, more thousands. And then she's like, you know, we really should take it in and just see. Um, And so we did. We took the car into the shop and we discovered that the problem wasn't what I had diagnosed. And that it would cost thousands with an S less than what I had feared. And I almost gave in to that fear. Fear is a liar, and it will make a fool out of us, just like it does with the religious leaders here. And that's why this text concludes with the stunning silence of Jesus. It's verse 33, because when the religious leaders come back to Jesus and say, we won't answer your question, we don't know. Jesus keeps his word and says, then I won't tell you by what authority I do these things. Verse 33, you may want to underline it, circle it, highlight it. This is one of the saddest and scariest verses in the entire Bible. To have the eternal Son of God, the Savior of the world, standing eye to eye with you in silence that speaks volumes. Essentially, with his silence, Jesus is saying, guys, I'm done speaking with you. For three plus years, I've been answering the question you've been asking about my authority. In my miracles, you've seen my power. In my teaching, you've heard my words of authority. It isn't that you don't have eyes to see the truth or the mind to grasp the truth. It's that you don't have the heart to believe the truth or the desire to submit to the truth. So listen, guys, it's not my words that will condemn you. Your silence will. I will give you everything you want. Your status with the people, your position among the people, Your authority over the people, you can keep it all. It's all yours. It's what you want. It's the choice you've made. Not just for today, but forever. And that's why we read in the very next verse in Mark 12, verse 1, that Jesus began to speak to them in parables. In metaphors, in pictures, rather than speaking clearly. Jesus says, I'm done. You've seen enough. You've heard enough. Your problem isn't that you lack information. Your problem is that you lack me. Friends, I beg of you. And this is one of those times that I feel the weight of eternity pressing down upon me this morning as I speak. Please, please, please. Do not go where these, these religious leaders are going. Do not do what they are doing. Do not turn a blind eye or a deaf ear to the authority of Jesus. Do not continually walk away unmoved and unchanged by the love of Jesus. God's mercy does have its limits. There will come a day, if you continue to reject it, that you will move past it if we repeatedly reject the light we've been given about Jesus, eventually that light will go out and we won't be able to see Jesus. That's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. And some of you, you you come here to Bethel week after week and we're so glad that you're here. We love having you here. But each week, you walk out of this room Intrigued by Jesus and fascinated with Jesus. Attracted to Jesus. But you're rejecting Jesus. Because you haven't come to Jesus. You haven't entrusted yourself to him. You aren't trusting in him. So will you right here, right now, today, I plead with you, will you come to Jesus? And that's not just a question for those who are new here. That's a question for those of you who've attended here for, for years or decades. Have you genuinely embraced this Jesus by faith alone? Hear again the words of Jesus in Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you Rest. Come, come to the one who has come to give his life for you. The one who possesses all authority in heaven and on earth has wielded that authority to die for us. Nothing could stop him from dying. No one could stand in his way of going to the cross in our place for our sins and dying where we should die. And that's why Jesus says in John 10, 17 and 18, for this reason the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Get this. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. Do you see? The love driving The authority of Jesus. The love for you. He can't be stopped from going to the cross. That's how he wields his authority. He is not an authoritarian. He is a lover of your soul. Would you trust him? Would you come to him? Would you stop rejecting him and receive him? Because Acts 16, verse 31 says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Repent and come to Jesus and he will save you. And when you're a child of God by faith in Jesus, then you learn that the authority of Jesus isn't something to be feared and rejected. It's something to be embraced and loved The king of the universe isn't working against you. He is working for you. So here are three takeaways for us today who are followers of Jesus. Number one, submit to him. Submit to him. Submit to his authority. Please listen carefully. Jesus is not like the people in authority who've used their authority to hurt you. Jesus never abuses his authority. He never misuses his power. He will never mistreat you or mislead you. And so your safe place is not in escaping his authority, but in submitting to his authority. In your marriage, in your family, in your career, in your money, with your morality, including your sexuality. You see, when I live life on my own, uh, doing things my own way, I'm, I'm running from the very thing I need most, the authority of Jesus. Because it's there that he fortresses me in the unshakable, unbreakable, unstoppable power of his love. And that's why James 4, verse 7 says, Submit yourselves to God, and then you'll be able to resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's the safety you get in submitting to him. And that means that, secondly, we can wait on him. We can wait on him. We sang it this morning already. Are you struggling with waiting on Jesus? See his authority working behind the scenes, even where you can't see and you don't feel. But he is. You see, Jesus' authority is universal. Not just geographically in every place, but chronologically in every moment. And so it's true right here in Mark chapter 11. On Tuesday, when Jesus is confronted by the very men who will arrange his crucifixion, if you were to stop and ask them, when do you want Jesus to be hanging on a cross? They would have said, yesterday. But Jesus won't die on Monday or Wednesday or Thursday. He will die on Friday, the very day that the Passover lambs will begin being slain in the temple. That's when he, as the Lamb of God, will be slain for us. Our God's timing is impeccable. And that's just as true in your life as it is in his son's death. And that's why Psalm 31, verse 15 says, My times are in your hand. All my times. The hard times, the lonely times, the long days, the dark nights. He rules over every one of my moments. Not just the when of those moments, but the how long of those moments. And so you can trust in Him. In every moment. The one who possesses all authority is with you personally in every situation. The one that holds the world holds you in the palm of his nail-scarred hands. He isn't just an authority. He's the authority. And that's why he can say to you in Isaiah 41, verse 10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. The hand of power is holding yours. Trust him. Submit to him. Love him. And obey him. This is yours king. Amen.